Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, and welcome to today's interview, HFL 82, with Hollywood film composer Bruce Broughton. I was pretty excited to get an opportunity to speak to a major film composer, and you know, I've been trying to branch out into other areas of the entertainment industry, and to get to talk to somebody like this uh, as a first is just terrific. I'm also reaching out to other film composers. Hopefully we'll be able to hear from them in the near future. I think you really enjoyed today's interview. A lot of great insight into the film industry and into, uh, of course, Bruce himself. And just a reminder, if you would, to go to Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a comment. I would greatly appreciate that. Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at SEShires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at PicketBlackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at PicketBlackburn.com, and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at Patreon.com slash StudioHFL. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Studio H-F-L. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated. Please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash Studio H-F-L. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. Okay. Hi. How are you? I'm good. You? Good. Are we on the same time zone? No. Where are you? Uh, Indianapolis, Eastern Time. I'm in LA. You are in LA. So I'm three gotcha. hours away. Gotcha. Just finished lunch. So. Well, I tell you, uh, I was just doing one last look over uh, your your website. <laughs> just, um, it, you know, I've seen so many of these things. I've played so many of these pieces that you, that are on here and I'm just I'm thrilled I'm thrilled to finally get to meet you and uh, so thank you very much for agreeing to this this is a real pleasure well thank you for asking you've had some pretty cool guys on I have and you know what I found is um, everybody's got a story to tell 
Yeah. And some of them are kind of reluctant sometimes to tell it, but you know, once you get some people started, <laughs> sometimes it's really hard to, uh, to get them to stop, but uh, it's, it's been, it's been great. Uh, I've done well over a hundred and I just released my 73rd just a few minutes ago, just dropped wow. it. Wow. So, so what do you do? You have this out every week? Yes, I'm, I'm doing, uh, doing this every week and I've got enough, <laughs> I've got enough if I stop doing interviews right now, I've got enough to get me to the end of 2021. Oh, okay. You know, I jockey things around and, and you know, try to uh, move things to spike interest and, and that sort of thing, grow the audience. This is a pleasure. You know, I, I've interviewed other composers, uh, but only within, you know, I, I think a much narrower scope. Jim Stevenson. Oh, yeah. He's great. Beautifully for, uh, for trumpet and for band and orchestra. Uh, uh, he's a former trumpet player. Yeah, and 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 I interviewed him. You know, he's like, I don't play anymore. He goes, I'm, I'm not even Easter or Christmas. He goes, it it still takes too much work to try to get back in shape for those. But uh, and Brian Belmages uh, is a guy that works for FJH Publishing. But uh, you know, that's that was a big departure for me from interviewing trumpet players, which yeah. that's really, you know, the HFL which is now here from legends, it started out as higher, faster, louder. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was kind of a, an homage to all my trumpet player friends, but. Yeah, who was the guy who um, years ago, I remember meeting him. Um, he, he was one of the first guys to play all the really high notes on recordings. Do you remember this is like 30, 40 years ago? Well, you're not, not Maynard Ferguson. No, 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 no. He was an L.A. guy. And I, I remember meeting him. I think we were at dinner or something. And he said that now th this was really a long time ago. It was maybe say 40, 45 years ago. And he said before he did one of those things, he would have to work out and he would have to, you know, you'd have to really take care of himself and all this kind of stuff. It's like now everybody does it, you know. Right. <laughs> Rick Baptist, Wayne Bergeron, Malcolm, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, all that. The John Lewis, all those guys are just yeah, yeah. fabulous. But. Um, so I, I want to start by, of course, I knew Tombstone before I knew that you were associated with that. I knew Silverado before I knew, but the first piece that I played that I knew was yours was Oliver's Birthday. Oh, okay. And cool. I actually use that still in my trumpet studio. Good. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those pieces that is kind of helping to bridge the gap, you know, because the mixed meter and it's got some nice scale work and it's just a fun tune. You know, I, I enjoy working it on myself because it's just a really fun tune. That's good. But my students enjoy working on that one as well. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting here a few weeks ago. Of course, you know, in these this day and time, a lot of us are sitting around. <laughs> well, I know. Doing, but I was watching Tombstone again. And it, I, the, for the first time, I, I, started really paying attention to uh, the music. There was something, I've, I don't know how many times I've watched that movie, but I always, you know, when you watch something a second, third or more time, you find something new. And the music really struck me. And I thought, I got to talk to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. And, you know, and, and I don't mean that's the first time I had noticed the music to that, but, you know, I was, I, it was just something that caught my ear. And so I really started focusing on that. And, uh, so, boy, uh, you know, really, I, I think where I would like to start, if it's okay with you, is what is the what is a film composer's life 
like during these times right now? What what's going on? Well, these times. Um, actually, I can speak for my wife, who's a violinist. She's a, a studio violinist, and she only plays in the studio. She um, she's originally from New Zealand. We met in London. She was doing a lot of movie work and television work and recording work in London. She had played with the LSO and I think the LPO. Um, but she's not working. I mean, a lot of people now aren't working because, you know, and, and she doesn't feel comfortable sitting in a studio, even though you're six feet apart and all that kind of stuff. So some people are, some people are working, but right now the work is kind of slow. Um, a lot of work, of course, is done electronically. So guys who do that, uh, they may hire a couple of musicians that come in and play live ahead in front of their tracks. Um, but there aren't an awful lot of people recording, uh, as far as I know, anyway. Um, let me let me slip back to what you were, what you just started with Oliver's birthday and Tombstone and Silverado. Um, as a film composer, you, you know the whole idea of having music in film really has little to do with the music. I tell my students this. I said, you know, when you when you get a job to do a film, it's probably not going to be about your music that got you the job. It may be your personality. Uh, it's likely to be your understanding of the script, your understanding of the story. It may be how you um, interact well with the director or whoever's in charge, the producer who's up in charge. The main reason music is in a film is to really help tell the story, period. And music is, um, is sort of like, if it were something to be seen, it would be invisible. Something to be heard, it needs to be heard, but a lot of people really aren't aware of it. And that, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's great film music, it just means that it's effective film music that is working so well that you're really involved in the story. And some of the things the music can do is it can make the uh, heroes a little bit more swashbuckling, it can make people a little more nervous, it can make you a little sadder, it can make it a little funnier, it can make it a little bit suspenseful, all those things. If you've ever seen a movie without music, they're very long, very long. Um, so Silverado and um, Tombstone uh, were two movies that, they were the only two real Westerns that I did other than some television stuff. My, my first credit is Gunsmoke, the old one with Jim Arness, you know, 50 years ago. I watched um, that. I remember watching that growing up. I worked on the last season. Um, anyway, uh, one of the things is when you're writing music for this stuff, you're always working for somebody else and you're always working to somebody else's taste and to somebody else's sensibility. And I say, it, it may not be their musical taste as much as it is their um, dramatic taste. So for the director, if that's the one you're working with, um, it has to be romantic to his or her conception of romance for that scene. It has to be sinister or scary or whatever the emotion is for them, because they're trying to tell the story. And the only reason you've got music there is to do that. If you can write good music as well that does all that, that to me, I think is the best thing you can do. If you can write music that actually sounds like music, even though it's it's an incredibly controlled kind of writing where you you actually do measure your notes. I mean, you know exactly how long everything is. You, you determine the speed of everything because it's gonna go into a film and then it's never gonna change. If you want to play it during a concert, you can play it however you want. But in the film, it has to be written to be played like that, you know. So you're always at the um, always at the um, 
command. I don't want to make it sound too too tough. I mean, sometimes it is, but you're always sort of at the command um, or the taste of somebody else. And sometimes uh, people don't like a lot of music. Sometimes they like, you know, they don't like a lot of music. And sometimes they don't want the music to stand out a lot. They're very sensitive to it. Other times people sort of leave you alone. Um, on Silverado and on Tombstone, they left me alone. And I think one of the reasons that people like those two scores is because they're um, very energetic and Tombstone particularly is very over the top. I mean, the whole movie was really over the top. Um, and even though they're my two Western movie scores, they really don't have an awful lot to do with each other. Silverado came first. Silverado is a movie about good guy, bad guy, white hat, black hat. Um, it's a movie about friendship and family and, and those kinds of things. Tombstone is a bunch about is a story about a bunch of bad guys. <laughs> Even the good guys are bad guys. I mean, they're all bad. They're all a bunch of bums, you know. <laughs> like um, Wyatt Earp is off cheating on his wife with some actress, and his wife's home uh, doing drugs. And uh, I mean, you know, it just everybody's everybody's all over the place. And when I first saw Tombstone, I saw only half of it. That's as far as they they gotten edited, and they had temp tracked the movie with the score from Silverado. Now a temp track is a temporary track that they put into a movie so they can get a sense of how it plays. Uh, it, they've done it forever. I mean, years and years and years ago before they got into digital stuff, which made this process really simple, um, they would temp track the main title of a movie and then they would temp track something like a, um, uh, what do you call it? A um, montage. So that an editor could get a chance of see how it played. Now they, they temp track everything. So they temp track this with Silverado and it was horrible. And the movie looked stupid. It just, it, I got really depressed looking at it. And the director came out and he says, so what do you think about my music for this film? And I said, well, I love your music, but not in this movie, you know? So once we took the music out and I was just working with the movie by itself, I realized it was a completely different kind of movie from Silverado. So the music for Tombstone is, it's not as, it's not as theme driven. It's very dark. It's very over the top. Um, it's very melodramatic. And um, it was very successful. I mean, the producers and the director loved it from the get-go. I mean, everybody likes that score, you know? And I've been asked to write concert pieces. And after I say I will, then, then very often people have said, we really like your music to Tombstone. And I said, oh, you mean you want part of that? And go, yeah, okay. So, this, so the ceiling sort of comes down, you know, and you do that. Um, but I, I think if you were to compare the two movies and see the styles of the music, uh, they both have a lot of energy. Silverado has a lot of energy, um, partly because I was very nervous. It was my first big movie and I was afraid I was gonna get, I was gonna screw them up, you know, but I didn't. Um, now, when, when you get to Oliver's birthday, Oliver's birthday is interesting to me because one, it's melodic, Two, it was made for, um, it was written for a level that's about high school, college age. It's not that hard to play, but it's not that simple, you know? Um, and it's tuneful, it's got this little tune. Oliver, by the way, is my stepson. He's my youngest boy. And he was coming up to a birthday, he was about eight, eight or nine years old. He was so excited. I said, oh, that's like that piece that I'm writing. So I called it Oliver's birthday, it fit him just perfectly. Um, so this, this melodic stuff is something that I try to include in the, in the scores as well when I can, because if you should ever hear the music, like if you ever hear the music of Silverado, 
you think of the movie. And if you see the movie and you hear that music, they, they really kind of go together. With uh, something like Oliver's birthday, uh, you hope that the tune will be strong enough that people will remember it and want to hear it again or somebody will want to play it. You know, there's all sorts of ways of being able to write this kind of music. Um, I think one of the best things, the things that I've liked most about doing television and, and movies is the uh, sheer variety of music I get, I get a chance to write. I've always written concert music, whatever that is, um, during my time off. Um, I've done a lot of band music. I've done a lot of solo music, um, done some orchestral music. Uh, I'm, right now, in fact, I'm, I'm working on a trumpet piece. I'm working on a suite for trumpet, uh, a grade down from Oliver's birthday, something that a, a grade level three could play. And that it has just enough technique in it to make it worthwhile. It's not so much that they couldn't play it. It's probably not as interesting as a grade four piece, but I'm hoping to find that sweet spot so that people like that can get up and actually perform something that will sound great, you know, with a nice accompaniment. And um, that's, you know, that's its own challenge. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it just turned out to be a really good profession for me. <laughs> you know, I just, particularly as I get older, I like it more and more because I've learned so much about it. I. I I have a few students that I teach. Um, it's really interesting to see, see what they do because you have to figure that every note that they're writing, good note or bad note, every note is a note that they think they wanted. And then you have to get a sense of what it is they're trying to do. And they're not the same. I mean, they may have similar problems, but they're not at all the same in the way they express things or the way they write things out and certainly not their... Um, not their backgrounds. So as you help somebody else figure out what their voice is and, and work, work their way through this technique, um, you're helping them solve problems, which as a composer, when it's your turn to write your music and you get screwed up on something, rather than, rather than say, oh, I'm too stupid, I can't do that. You have to say, no way, I solved this for somebody the other day. I'll have to solve this for myself. So you just sit there and you erase and then you rewrite and then you erase and then you work some, you put in a couple more bars or you take out a couple, you know, you, you fashion it until you can finally sit back and go, oh, okay, there, I did it, you know, finally. There are times when I've, I've been writing things and thinking, I'll never get out of this. I've dug myself a hole, I'll never get out of this. But you still sit there and you keep digging, you keep digging, you keep digging and pretty soon, you know, you solve the problem. So that's a long answer to whatever the question was. <laughs> I, I love long answers, right? That was great. You know, I. I the evolution of film music, you know, you go back to uh, Corn Gold, uh, Bernard Herrmann, Elmer Bernstein, and of course, you know, the, the sweeping scores of Gone with the Wind and those pirate movies of, of the days gone by. And then now we're into soundscapes, you know, this, yeah. this, and there might still be movies with the lush strings and the yeah. big brass fanfares, but I mean, your time in the industry have you felt that your particular compositional style has has followed that, or have you tried to incorporate some of that soundscape into your your current scoring? No. Um, if I have a, I, I don't do that much scoring anymore. I mean, actually, the last thing I did for a show was the uh, pilot to um, the Orville, the Seth MacFarlane show. Hmm. So I did the title to that and the pilot. Um, I've done some. Disney theme park work, but most of the stuff that I've done has been fairly traditional. Um, I've used, I've done scores where I've included 
synthetic elements and they, they work fine. Um, but when I'm doing my own writing, I'm old enough now that I can just do my own writing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, if, if I stopped now, I would still have a whole bunch of music behind me. I'm really more interested in the music that I'm doing today. Mm. I, mean, I, I mean, I really am, you know, I mean, it's, it's like the most fun thing you can do during this period. Um, and I, I like solving the problems and I like writing, but I, I don't want to have to go through an awful lot of processes to get to the music. I'd rather, like in the piece that I'm writing now, I'd rather present a trumpet player with his or her part and the piano player with their part and then let them go at it, you know? I don't want to have to bring in um, MP3s or CDs or, you know, things to have ooey, ooey, ooey going on in the background. Um, I have friends who do that, who are very successful at it. Um, it's sort of a young man's game or a young person's game in that so many students don't have the availability of live musicians. So they get immediately into electronic stuff. Um, one of the problems I'm seeing with that, and I have nothing against electronic music, nothing at all, not in the least. But one of the problems I find when that's your reference point is that you get a sense, you get a sense of what the instrument sounds like, sort of. I mean, a synth trumpet sounds sort of like a trumpet, sort of. But it doesn't sound like a trumpet player playing a trumpet, you know, which is very, very different. Um, like it, it's, I mentioned my, my wife is a violinist. It's really extreme when you get somebody like a, somebody at that level, like my wife is to play a, a violin melody. The thing that I would play on a synthesizer is disgusting, <laughs> disgusting. And it has no emotional element at all because every note that you play sounds alike, no matter how many times you play it, it's gonna sound like that she can come in and mold a line just playing a phrase as any trumpet player, clarinet player, bass player. I mean, everybody can do that, you know? Even pianists will do that and guitarists. Um, I've, done, uh, I've, I've done temp tracks for a movie myself. You know, we, we have to do temp tracks now for the, um, not temp track, we do what we call mock-ups, which is we take the score and we put it into a synth version so the director or the producer can hear it. It's, it's horrible. Um, because it's not the real thing, you know? I mean, if you're writing an emotional score, like Silverado, I would never ever have done that on a mock-up. Silverado sounds like Silverado because it's an orchestra of 80, 90 people playing their brains out, you know? That, that horn riff at the beginning is four guys sitting there, or four people sitting there saying, can I make the high B flat? Can I make the high B flat, you know? Um, it's, uh, it's always interesting to find that when you get your music past that mock-up stage or temp stage and give it to a real musician, how expressive it becomes. And then you start to find out what's in your own music. I mean, in, in film, you've got to write it so that it works right for the scene, period. I mean, that it's, if it doesn't work for the scene, it's useless, you know, and then you fix it or you take it out or you rewrite it or they get somebody else, whatever. It has to be just right for that scene. It has to evoke a very specific emotion. When you're doing a concert piece, it's really up to the player. And you can have a great piece. If it's played badly, it's going to sink. Um, if it's a mediocre piece, but played really well, the piece is going to be better. I mean, I, I've heard uh, Horowitz play, uh, well, he plays the Star Spangled Banner on the piano. Okay, that's an okay tune. We all know it, but it doesn't sound like that all the time. You know, when he plays it, it's almost an art piece, you know. So um, these varieties of music, as well, you know, and when you get into, like you mentioned, 
you've you've talked to Malcolm, you talked to John, and, and you know Wayne, all these guys. Okay, so I've worked with all these guys. These guys all have different styles. They all have slightly different sound. Sometimes they'll play together in a section, in which case they sound like a great section. But if you have one of them as a soloist, they're going to play it in a slightly different way, and you just know that. If if one of the guys becomes your lead guy, the, the person who you, you call most, and you know that he or she is gonna be on your session, you're gonna write for them because you're gonna say, oh, this will sound beautiful. This is gonna, they'll hit this. I, I know how they're, this, this, this will sound beautiful. When you're writing a, a general piece like what I'm doing right now, you hope that occasionally it'll sound beautiful. You hope that it'll excite the player and then you hope it'll excite the audience and then you hope that it will have some sort of a life beyond that one performance, you know, where the kid is relieved having gotten through the piece and the audience is relieved that the kid got through the piece and, and that they weren't bored and all that stuff. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff to writing and performing music. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible thing to take on, really. You know, I mean, you, you've got, you, you spend your time talking to other people, but you could, I, we could switch places and you could tell me a whole bunch of great stories, you know, about what your experience is, you know, doing this. Well, here we are in the middle of today's interview. Just a reminder that support for this podcast comes from Messina Covers, who has you covered, literally, for all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to the interview. Okay, so I, I want to ask, uh, before I forget, the, the relationship between a, a film composer and a director. Uh, do you, have you ever said to a director, that's, that's not the direction I think it should go? Have, have you ever been able to, to assert your preference uh, for the mood of a scene? Um, or do you have to acquiesce well, to what they want? Well, so... I've been in the situation where I'll say, you know, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let me suggest this. This scene, I think, actually works great by itself. But if we put music at the scene before it, it's going to set up this scene because then we can do blah, 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 blah. So we won't put any music on that scene. We'll put it on the one before it. And then we'll follow it after that scene with something here, which case that will take us to blah, 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 blah. And they very often will say, oh, oh, yeah, okay, that'll work. Yeah, that's a great idea. So you're not going to turn to them and say, I'm sorry, your idea stinks. You're going to say, um, I think your movie, I think your movie could take this. I think the scene would, would, I don't know that you want to say it would improve itself, but I think it would be more understandable or it would help it help this character come out and then the relationship and all that kind of stuff. You have to talk like a, um, you don't want to talk like a musician. You want to talk like a dramatist. Um, Silverado was, was not my first movie, it was my third movie. My first movie was a movie for Billy Graham, the evangelist. My second movie was a science fiction movie that was not very great, but it's you still find it on television. Um, and then I got Silverado. Silverado was a big movie by a big company and my agent got me a script and a meeting with the director. Before this, the only stuff I'd done had been television, I'd done mini series, like I did The Blue and the Gray, I said, I said, Gunsmoke, um, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd done a lot of that stuff, but never a big feature like this. So I read the script that the director and his brother had written, had co-written, and found this script really interesting, 
very well put together, but very dense. But it was the kind of dense that I, I could almost feel the sand in my mouth, you know, the desert. So I went and had this meeting with this guy. I didn't know him. I mean, I knew who, I knew who he was. Um, I had seen two of his movies before that. And he had, um, he had written the um, script to the second Star Wars movie, second and third Star Wars movie. He, was, he was a, had been a writer who became a director. And he had done Indiana Jones. So I, mean, I, I knew him from his credits, but I didn't know him. Well, it turned out we, you know, he was a very friendly guy and we got on very good. Um, he was there, his brother was there and their editor who actually was a musician uh, was there. And we're talking about this movie that has not been made yet. So what we're talking about really is, is an idea. We're talking about the script and we're talking about a movie that has yet to be made. So I'm talking to a director who's really at the beginning. I mean, he's, he's already worked on the script. He knows what he wants to do, but he hasn't done it. And there's a long way between what you intend and what you end up with. So he's got his nervousness going. He's getting his team together. He's dealing with the studio. And, and besides this, nobody had made a Western for years. I, I tell people the, uh, the most successful Western before Silverado was Blazing Saddles. And that was because it was a parody, you know? And once it's a parody, it's, it's gone. I mean, it's, it's dead, right? So here was this Western. And we talked about the script. Okay, so I talked about the script. I talked about what my sense was about the script and what I thought the story was about the characters. He asked me questions. I asked him questions. It was a 20-minute meeting that went for an hour and a half. I mean, it was great. It was like the best first date I ever had. And um, he wasn't ready to hire me. He still had other people to talk to. He had people with much bigger credits than I had. But I think that meeting was the one that really did it because he, um, I, I understood the movie as far as I could see like he did. And I talked to the editor about it afterwards. She, we were all a team, you know, we were all working on the same kind of a movie. And I think that's the kind of thing that that you do as a composer, you don't want to talk about music because they don't know anything about music. And if they do know about music, it really gets in the way. Um, because we're not talking about music, we're talking about something that is dramatic and very emotional and very, very, very specific. Very specific. Um, you'll very often hear a director say, oh, that, that's too much. That's too little. I don't get enough of this. You know. So what do you do? What does that mean to a musician? It means you have to fix it. or it's not romantic enough, or it's too sinister. Can you make it more suspenseful? Or it's too suspenseful, can you make it more sinister? Where are the notes for that? That's not very funny. And I had one, one uh, director say to me, um, I'm not laughing, you know? And I kept fixing the piece, I'm not laughing. And so that was, that was sort of like the other story I told you. Great guy, great, you know who he was, he was a great guy. But, and he had a huge experience with comedy, but I couldn't get this one. And, when I finally did get it, I almost went down on my knees <laughs> and thank God for, you know, he, he finally, he, he says, now that's funny. Okay, that's, that's a long way from, I'm not laughing. I'm still not laughing. You know, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to feel because it's not like you voiced it wrong. It's not like you had a bad tune or your bass line was wrong or something like that. It was, it's something else. Furthermore, what I learned about the directors is that if I took these two directors that I just talked about, they are very different people, not only in terms of their personality, they're very different people in the way that they 
receive music. Um, one of them, um, one of them had some musical experience because he had played drums. The other one is married to somebody who's a very fine clarinet player, amateur, and he'd listen to music all the time. He he could tell you about Beethoven's Fourth Symphony. I mean, nobody listens to that one, you know, but he could tell you about the Fourth Symphony. He knew Schubert's songs and he couldn't read music and he couldn't play an instrument, but he knew a lot about music. And the way that he felt music um, was the thing that was really important. If he felt it, that was what you were going for. Well, you know, you don't know this when you just meet them for the first time. You have to find out how people are working. It's, it's really interesting. The, the music thing is almost something that you that you keep to yourself, you build your arsenal of weapons, sort of, or your tools, and you bring them out when you need them. Um, you don't always need to bring out the big gun. Sometimes it's a, you know, it's a little pop gun. Uh, sometimes it's just a little touch here, a little touch there. Um, there's a scene in a movie I did, Young Sherlock Holmes, where, um, <coughs> When the, when the heroine dies, she dies with a harp note. You know exactly when she dies because the harp goes boing. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know if that's the greatest dramatic thing I ever did in my life, you know, but, but it's, it gets to be that specific. And I had to wait and say, okay, where's the moment? Oh, it's right there, you know. And then that's, that's where the harp goes. And it can be very moving, you know, you do things like that. You can, you can take a look and you can change the look, you know, you can soften the look or you can flatten the look or you can, make it a little sexier or something. I mean, it's, it's really fabulous, all the things you can do. When you're doing concert music, completely different completely different set of rules. You bring up a really interesting thing about perspective, right? The director is, is watching and listening to the work that you've done. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's, you know, I'm not laughing. But what if everybody around him were laughing? What if his audience would have had responded in, you know, in laughter. And when you're writing it, you know, you may think this is hilarious, but then, you know, you get the deadpan reaction from the audience, you know, so it's, you know, and I think about this uh, in marketing, you know, we, we don't want to market necessarily for what we like. We want to market to appeal to right. the, 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 the consumer, right? So, you know, I kind of wonder if, is there that line? Is there that uh, delineation between, you know, trying to just please the consumer or are you, are you really focused on, on, I'm not sure how to ask the question. Do you, well, you no, I, I understand it's, it doesn't end with me. Um, what they will do in a case like that, I think the director would be foolish not to pay attention to the audience around him, even, even during, during the recording session. However, he may think, that that's not the same thing as a, uh, as a studio audience. So what they will do with the movies, what they always do is they go and they test them out. They, um, if, they, if the score, if they've got enough time that they can put the score in, they will um, put the score in the movie and then they'll give it to an audience. In one case, um, on a comedy that I was working on, they had put microphones like every couple of rows through the theater so they could hear all the laughs. So if, if that particular thing that I did didn't catch his fancy and he wanted something else, we might do it two ways. I might rewrite it for him. So he'll say, okay, that's fine. We've got both of them. Let's, let's use both of them and see which, which one plays better. They might want to do that, you know, because yeah, they want to get the, they want to get the biggest bang for the buck. And um, 
I mean, I mean they're, they're just people, you know, there are people under a lot of stress. Um, sure. There are cases, you know, I, I mentioned this science fiction movie I did at the very beginning. I mean, it wasn't a great movie, but it could have been, it could have been a lot better if the studio had let go of it. Um, so the, the guy made the movie and it was, you know, it was what it was. It was kind of, it was really goofy. It was a big send up of uh, Star Wars and the studio hated it. Absolutely hated it, hated it. And, and he showed it to them after I had recorded it. So he showed them the finished version. They hated it. They made him recut the whole thing. So he recut the whole thing. So it made no sense at all. And they took my music and cut it up and put it in here and there and all that. So when I look at it, I mean, I actually, I haven't looked at it, but the movie was a lot worse by having the studio get in on it because these guys don't make movies. You know, they, they, they look at how much money they're making. You know, they know more about marketing than they know about creating. So they actually, I wouldn't say that they ruined his, they ruined his movie, but they may have, you know, they may have shot themselves in the foot and he got the blame for it because he was the director. You know. uh, um, would, you, would you care to share what movie that is or would you rather leave that? Yeah, it's the Ice Pirates. It's called the Ice Pirates. <laughs> the Ice Pirates is not a good movie, but it was a better movie before they cut it. I mean, it's a goofy movie. It's really a goofy movie. Um, but it, it's it survived to a lot of people who see it as a uh, as a cult movie, you know. Like there, I did a couple of movies um, that were like that, the, the Ice Pirates, and then there's another one I did called Monster Squad, which is you know it's a cute movie. Um, kids love that movie. Kids love it. They absolutely love it. I, <laughs> I I do a residency at the University of North Texas, and I was there one day. I was going to go into a class to talk about film music, and because um, they have a media uh, a media department, which is I mean, they're going great guns over there. Um, so I, I was just waiting to go into the class and there are these two students talking to each other. And this one guy was saying to the girl, yeah, I mean, I remember watching movies like blah, 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 Monster Squad. And I said, oh, Monster Squad. I said, I wrote the music to that. And he, this guy, I thought he was gonna lose it. Oh, I, I can't believe you wrote my, I'm thinking, oh, come on, it wasn't that great, you know? <laughs> but you know, a lot of people that, you know, like another one that I did that gets a huge reaction from people mostly in their 30s, is uh, Homeward Bound because there's that tune in it, you know, and they just love it. I mean, it, it's just a tune that somebody told me, I think it may have been one of my students, he said, that movie, that music has meant so much to me in my life. It has been so personal to me in my life. It, it changed my life. How does that make you feel? And I said, I really don't want to hear about that <laughs> because I don't want to take any responsibility at all. But People get invested with this stuff, you know, they get really invested. I mean, see what happens to um, John Williams' music, because I mean, he's had so many big hits, which people have been invested in because they're great films, you know? So yeah, there are, there are some perks to this, you know? I've had people say, I went into music because of, because of your score to something or other, and, and I wanted to become a film composer when I saw your music to such and such, and you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's nice to hear. So that, that begs the question, was there that kind of event that got you into film music? No, <laughs> I'm so stupid. Um, no, I actually, actually, I won't say I'm stupid. It's not, it's not because of that. When I was a kid, I used to go to movies. It cost us 25 cents, right? I could, there were some theaters I could get in for a dime. This is a long time ago. And I would go see a movie and I would go see a movie. That was all there was to it. I wasn't even aware there was any music in it. I mean, I, I don't remember. I don't remember a note of anything until I got into my teens. And I think the only reason 
I was aware of it then was because a friend and I, a friend who was, was a high school friend who was, um, he, he loved movie scores and he loved movies and all that kind of stuff. He and I together went to see Spartacus, which is a terrific movie with a great score, great by a terrific composer, Alex North. And um, he was talking about it the whole way. Listen to that, listen to that. You know, and when we walked out, all he would talk about was the score, the score, the score. So I started listening to the music. And by the time I got to college, um, I knew who Alex North was. And I, you know, this is actually kind of funny. I remember seeing, um, I saw everything Alex North did, I would try to see. I can remember Cleopatra and all that. And then he did Shoes of the Fisherman, which I thought was a great film. And I remember the score. When the score ended, I just stood there as everybody's filing out of the theater. I just stood there and listened to this music. And I thought, this guy, this guy must be seven feet tall. I mean, the music was so magnificent. You know, I was, I thought that was great. So one day I saw Alex North conducting. And I said, who's that? He says, Alex North. I said, that can't be Alex North. Alex North is seven feet tall. Alex North was a little guy, you know, <laughs> which was very funny. Um, no, but by, by the time I got to college, I got to know who Jerry Goldsmith was because Jerry got my attention because I started listening to the music and Jerry was really good. Um, I had a little bit of sense of who some of the other guys were. Um, Max Steiner, Korngold a little bit. Um, but I had to really, you know, I, it took me a long time to be able to understand what it was. What got me into the movies was an experience, a life experience. Uh, I, was, I was about 20, I guess I was in my last year of college, so I was probably 21 or something. And I'm driving down La Brea Avenue here in LA, listening to a song. And it was, you know, it was the 60s, so the music was pretty good. And, you know, the song's making me bounce around. I'm a young guy, and, I'm, and I thought, man, that's what I'd like to do. I'd already gotten a degree as a, as a composer and I, I needed to find out what to do with my life. I said, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to play, I'd like to write music that makes people feel good or that makes people feel something. Just like that music makes me feel good. I'd like to have, I'd like to write music that makes people feel. And I thought, well, what kind of music is that? And then this all went around for about, it took about five seconds to figure it out. Songs, no, songs are too short. I want to write something of, of length. I want to get a bunch of people together and hear the music. Movies, you get people in a dark room and you get to play music of length and it's all emotional. I'm gonna see if I can get into the movies. I knew nobody in the movies. So I had to find my way in. So I, I spent 10 years working at TV for CBS television, uh, learning, you know, learning how to do this stuff. But that was basically it. And in those 10 years, CBS um, produced a lot of television. That's, that's how I got into Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-O, a bunch of other shows you've never heard of. Um, oh, Dallas! I, you know, I saw Dallas. Oh, Dallas was later. Dallas. Yeah. yeah, Dallas was later. Um, the, the the guy who wrote the theme to Dallas was originally the copyist in my music department, um, and then he became a composer, which was hard. You know, not a lot of copyists do that. He became a composer. The first show he worked on was Gunsmoke. When Gunsmoke died, all the producers went somewhere else, and one of the guys became the executive producer of of um, Dallas. So he went there and then I, I went later. Um, oh, oh, so anyway, these, these 10 years, we hired everybody, but we were doing television shows and then we started, um, CBS started producing movies. So we were hiring movie composers like Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and Lalo Schifrin and, and um, Henry Mancini and, and um, Michelle Legrand and Lawrence Rosenthal and all these guys. Um, 
Leonard Roseman. I mean, all these guys came there. Quincy Jones. I mean, they all came there. I got to see all of these guys. I'd go to their sessions. I'd see their music, you know. It was spectacular. It was spectacular. And then eventually I met some of these guys. You know, I, I actually, I think I met, I think I met all, all of them. I mean, it's, um, it was spectacular. It was just, it was spectacular. And so I still really look up to a lot of them for what they did, for what they could do. Um, like if you get somebody like John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith and Lalo Schifrin, you have three very, um, Okay, what's, what's the word? You have three, not competent, they're more than competent, um, very skilled composers who don't sound like each other at all. They all do, I mean, they can do similar things, but they all do things that are, are specific to them. I mean, John has been writing for over 60 years. I mean, he, he's probably written every style you can possibly imagine. Um, Star Wars is not his style. Star Wars is a style he picked up from Corn, from Cornville, you know, because that's what they wanted. Uh, he has a lot of movies that don't sound anything like that. Same thing with Jerry Goldsmith. But I've heard some really beautiful music coming out of him. And, and if I've been fortunate enough to be on a recording session where you hear it live and you hear the, the musicians playing it for the first time, and some of this stuff is really, really spectacular. And you learn, you know, you just learn like crazy. And then you learn about the players, what the players can do. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I was... When I, when I get in the middle of one of these things, I start to think of how lucky I've been, you know, because yeah. I met so many people and became friends with so many people and I learned from so many people. The guy that, the guy that ran the department for the CBS music department was the guy who wrote the Hawaii Five-O title. Um, he, was, he was not a great manager and he was sometimes very difficult to deal with, but we got on great. He was an enormous talent and years later, after, after working on television, I was the, um, right, and I was in movies already, I was the supervising composer for a cartoon show called Tiny Toon Adventures. Yeah, I love that. I wrote, I wrote the little tune, you know, and I needed to find composers to work on this show. And he was one of the guys I hired. Who knew? He was great at this stuff, you know? I mean, he was great at doing Hawaii 5.0, but he was great at the cartoons too. So, you know, it's all, it's all kind of fun. Uh, going back uh, to something you were talking about earlier with uh, uh, the the director you didn't mention who said, no, that's 180 degrees the wrong way. But you were talking about you were leading the session. Yeah. And of course, you know, there are an awful lot of composers who are great at composing, but they couldn't conduct themselves out of a paper bag. Hmm. Uh, was this something that came naturally to you? Do you feel really comfortable leading an orchestra through a session? Yeah, no, I, I'm not uncomfortable leading an orchestra. I've done... I've done legit conducting where I'm a lot less comfortable. Um, 10, 12 years ago, uh, I was invited to do a um, chamber music concert in Kansas. And it was a chamber music festival. And I was invited to, uh, it, uh, to write a piece for them and then to conduct the rest of the concert. My, my piece would be the last half of the concert and the first part. So one of the things we, we were gonna play was the uh, Barber Violin Concerto. I don't ever want to conduct that one in my life ever again. You know? um, but I, well, the last, I, the last movement I, as a trumpet player, the last movement is is fierce. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a it's an awkwardly written piece. I mean, as a as a composer, I'm, and I'm not putting a guy down. I mean, he's a he was a terrific composer, but that last movement is a really awkwardly written piece. And I, I've heard stories about numbers of performances that have just stopped and had to restart. We didn't do that. We got to the end. You know. 
Um, but in order, because I knew I would really have to work on that, I did some Mendelssohn, did Copeland. I did the easier stuff. I sweated bullets on all of them, you know. When I'm doing my music, it's my music. And in the movies, they say there are, um, there are lots of things that, I mean, the, the timing is everything. So you, you, you've got to get it timed right. And if you want to get it performed in a certain way, you have to be able to speak to people to get whatever you can out of them, which I, there are probably people who do that better than me. Some composers don't like to conduct. They would rather be in the booth talking to the director to make sure that their score doesn't go sideways or that they can get the next job. And there's something to be said for that too. There are a couple of composers I know who hire conductors who, who could conduct themselves. It's not that big a deal. Uh, but some of you, a lot of conductors, a lot of composers aren't conductors. Um, I'm comfortable with it. I like doing it. I would rather do it myself. When, when I don't do it, the notes get played and that's about it. So oddly enough, I didn't conduct uh, Tombstone. I had somebody else conduct Tombstone. Um, but yeah, I, I like to conduct. I like to have some control over it. However, having said that, um, I wrote a piece, I wrote a brass band piece several years ago as a commission and it didn't go really well. Um, it was a joint commission between, between the brass group in the United States and the brass group in, in London in Britain and it didn't go it didn't go very well so they canceled the London performance and it really bummed me out and I'd heard I heard performances of it and it was they weren't great and I really thought I'd written a lousy piece you know so I mentioned it to a friend of mine a conductor um, Bram Moltovi who has a brass band background like I do and I said um, this is the thing about the piece it will send it to me let me see it so he he wrote me back about a year or so later saying I'm going to be in Manchester uh, with the Royal Northern, we've got a great brass band there and I'm going to play your piece. We've got a um, festival or something. Coming up. So I went over to hear it. Now he's a real conductor and uh, he's also a composer, but he's a real conductor. Um, I listened to the rehearsal and I thought, I don't think this piece sounds bad at all. I think it sounds pretty good. And by the time we did the concert that night, people, I mean, I swear to God, people were literally jumping out of their chairs because it was sitting, I thought, oh, I will never conduct one of my pieces again <laughs> if I can have Bram do it or have somebody who knows what he's doing because a conductor will take your piece. And I, I couldn't even tell you what he did except that he he got the band enthused and he, he figured out the um, the best ways to get in and out. And I mean, he, he just, it was a wonderful performance, very exciting. And um, he, he just looked at the piece that wasn't his, you know, so he could be objective about it and then be subjective after that. So. I conduct in the movies. I prefer not to conduct. I've got to do something else. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, uh, just from a compositional uh, standpoint, um, motives when when or light motifs. You know, when you're looking at a script the first time or watching the the movie without music the first time, is that something that you look for, or things that uh, motifs that might recur throughout? And do you build themes on that, or do you take a different approach? I don't, um, I try not to do it if I read the script because the script isn't the movie. Um, and what I mean by that is you might, you can read the script and you know what it's about and you know what the scenes are about and you know, she does this and he does that and blah, blah, but you don't know who she is and you don't know who he is and you don't know whether they have any chemistry. Um, 
I mean, you just don't, you just don't know. You don't know anything about the pacing of the film. You know nothing. So I, I tried not to think about music film. Uh, once I see the film, yeah, then I'll start to think about music. Um, usually I don't come up with anything. I'll do it later after we have the spotting session where we figure out where the music's going to go. Because one of the interesting things about spotting, uh, I can look at the movie and say, oh, this will be an orchestra of blah, 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 blah. You know, like I look, the first time I looked at Silverado, I said, heck, I could do this movie with a harmonica and a guitar. Because it wasn't, a, you know, it didn't feel like a big movie. Once I got into it and talked to the director and we were really, you know, in it, I realized, oh no, there's a lot more into it. Um, so you, you think you're gonna play this, you think you're gonna play that, well, you don't. As you're spotting it, you realize that that scene plays just by, plays fine by itself. This scene needs a little help. This scene needs you to help it get to that scene. And then, oh, there's a, there's a character that we're playing a lot. It's a secondary character, but we're, we're playing more music under that character than we are under the stars. So the music takes a completely different tone. And so once you figure out where the music's gonna go, I'll sit with it and say, okay, um, what am I trying to play here? I'm trying to play this kind of a character, this kind of a situation. And then I will try to think of some melodic thing, some sort of melodic fragment, try to get an idea that expresses that to me. Usually it comes pretty quickly. Not always, sometimes I have to sit there for days and hunt for a tune. It's my version of writer's block, which is always just terror, is that you've screwed yourself up comparing yourself to somebody else, you know, bigger, wiser, greater, more talented, you know, which is always nonsense. But usually when, once, the, once the tune comes, the theme, I can generally write the theme out. And then I have to figure what sort of orchestra am I gonna use? What sort of instrumental combination am I gonna to use to express this? Um, because one of the great things about working on movies is you get a choice, you get a chance basically to use your own combination. When I worked at CBS, we always worked with an orchestra of 18 people. That was the budget. You could use 18 of anything. Bernard Herman came one day and he did his 18 man orchestra, he was doing a Western, uh, was six basses, six bassoons, and six contrabass clarinets. And he said, the highest note is middle C, but I don't think it ever got that high. And it was like mud. I mean, it was just because he wrote these triads, two people on a part, you know, and they're triads going back and forth. Well, you know, basses on, on triads is pretty muddy. That score never made any sense to me at all. Um, so I asked, I listened to it several times trying to get something out of it. Um, so I asked the producer several months later, I said, what was that score like you got from Herman? Oh, he said, that was the best score we had all year. I said, why? He said, it was a really dark show. It was a, we had a Jack the Ripper character. It was really sinister. And man, that music worked great. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, that makes a lot of sense. So you try to find music, you try to find a combination that will, like um, Bernard Herman was really skilled at that. He figured out that people could hear, that people were sensitive to musical color. I mean, we understand the word color, the non-musicians don't understand what that means, but they understand the, um, the sound of the music and they can turn that into emotion. And Herman would do that. I mean, Herman sometimes would just write repeats for bars and bars and bars and bars and bars, writing the same kind of music over and over and over and over again. But as long as he kept that sound, that color, uh, it worked fine with the scene, you know? So um, we do all that and then I start to write. <laughs> start to write and I start to worry, did I get there? Because you know, you. 
you look at a scene, I, this has happened to me a lot of times, and, and I finally just learned to go with it. When I first started doing this, I would say, okay, I know what this scene's about. It's about this, and I'd proceed to write something else. So then I'd erase it. I'd get two or three bars into it, and I'd erase it, and I'd rewrite it. And I would rewrite what I just erased, or something similar to it. And I would do this, and finally, because I didn't have any time, I'd just write the thing that had to be written and then be done with it, and then I'd worry. When I'd see it with the film, it turned out that that was the right thing to do. It wasn't, the, this other thing that I was thinking about may have been right too, but this had more to it than that one did. Because now I'm writing on my, I'm writing on my feelings. I'm connecting feeling to feeling, you know? And it's really interesting to see what comes up that way. I mean, you really don't know what's gonna come out. Um, Jerry Goldsmith said, it, it's kind of interesting when you're in that process. Um, he says, sometimes your finger slips off the key. You go, oh, oh yeah, okay, like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, silly things happen. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a brass band background. Yeah. Uh, I, okay, so my family, um, the family I grew up with worked for the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army has a big brass band tradition. So uh, in my family, and it was thick in my family, it was my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, I had aunts and uncles, a lot of them were all in the Salvation Army and, and most of them could play an instrument. My grandfather, one grandfather was a composer of brass band music. Um, both my parents could play brass instruments and the piano, they could sight read and sing. Um, we could ha have family quartets. We, we had family brass quartets. My brother was a terrific trombone player, played in the studios. Um, we would play brass quartets. I even wrote a piano quartet one time for my family to play at a Rotary Club thing. I think I arranged country gardens or something. My parents sat in the middle. My brother stood at one end and I stood at the other. My brother and I are big guys, you know. We stood at the other end. We covered the entire piano with, with country gardens. Um, so when I was a boy, I wanted to become an animator, I thought. But when I was about six, I started taking piano lessons and then somebody handed me a trumpet. And I had to learn that. I never liked playing brass as much as I liked playing the piano. But I continued playing brass until I was um, done with the army, the US army. I played horn, that was my instrument. Mm -hmm. I played it, I was a mediocre horn player. But I did get a little bit of symphony experience. I, I played in the Monterey Symphony for a season. Um, my, my brother was the trombone player, but he, he could play piano. It's like my wife, she plays piano, but I've never heard her. I've, heard her play maybe three times in our whole marriage um, because that's not their instrument. Their instrument, you know, when it's your instrument, that's your instrument. Trumpet, brass, that was not my instrument. Piano was my instrument. Um, so I became a pretty decent pianist and, and uh, I never became anything more than a mediocre horn player. But as you know, when I did Silverado, that big horn fair, fanfare at the beginning, I knew the guys who were going to play it. And I thought, okay, I couldn't play this in a million years, but they can you know, and I knew it was high. I, I knew what the problem was. When, and you know, it's interesting. You, I've heard that piece played so many times with different orchestras. Um, and you can, you can just see the horn players getting ready to get into it because they know that's their, that's their couple of seconds. You know, they're gonna hit that, go for it. Right. So where did you serve in the army? In the, which army, the Salvation Army or the US? Uh, no, US Army. US Army, I got drafted in um, 1968 uh, in Monterey, Fort Ord. And I got into the band, fortunately. I, I started off in radio school. 
because musicians are really good with Morse code and all that stuff, but I, but I didn't want to get shot at. So I got into the band and um, stayed in Monterey for about a year and a half. And in the last seven or eight months, I was in Italy playing in a band there, which was, mm -hmm. needless to say, it was really a lot of fun. You know, I had a good time in the army and I have some really good friends. I mean, do you know, um, do you know a trumpet player named Dennis Node? You played oh, with absolutely, him. yeah. Dennis was in the band with me. And, um, Den and we, we have a mutual friend, uh, Jim, who's also a trumpet player. He was a, a school teacher, high school teacher. We still all stay in touch, you know. Um, no, we had, a, we had a good time. I had a really great time. My oldest daughter was born in Italy, so I remember it fondly, but I didn't want to stay with him. You know, I'd already started working at CBS, and that was an advantage. I was working at CBS, I got drafted, so I had, I, I had a job waiting for me when I got back, which was good for me. Yeah. Um, and I did a little bit of writing when I was in the band. Um, band music is interesting. Um, some of it is very good. A lot of it is very bad. Um, <laughs> but you know, you try to do one and not the other. Uh, one guy I met, um, or one guy I became acquainted with through his music in the band, a guy named John Kakavis. And I met John when he came to Hollywood because John um, had been a, I think he was a warrant officer in the army or something like that. He'd worked for a publisher. So he was, he, he was a composer uh, and he did a lot of band music. And um, I forget, he was with a big publisher. So he understood publishing. And then he came to Hollywood to try and get in the movies, which he did. He did, um, oh, the, the show with Telly Savalas. Um, Kojak. Kojak, yeah. John did Kojak and he did a ton of stuff. He worked at Universal, he worked there for years. Great guy, but um, but I used to play his music in the band and I, I always liked John's music because it always sounded right. It always sounded good. You know, there's something musical about it. So it wasn't a wasted experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there are a couple of really interesting new projects. Well, I don't know how new they are, but of course uh, with the Seth MacFarlane yeah. uh, thing you're working on. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? I mean, the album or the show? The album. The album. Um, they, they, they came around the same way. One day he gave me a phone, he gave me a call. Uh, my wife and I were out of town and he called me, I guess, on my cell. He introduced himself. Um, I sort of knew who he was. I mean, I didn't know him really well. I didn't watch the show too much, but I mean, I knew who he was. And he said um, that he was a fan, which it turned out he was because he, has lots of friends who are composers. He really likes film music and he, and he really likes, you know, he really likes good music. He's, I mean, he's, he's, he's quite a good musician himself. And he's also really, he's a great guy. So anyway, he said, um, what I'm calling you about is I've got a concert. This was in March. He said, I've got a concert uh, during the summer at the Hollywood Bowl with the LA Philharmonic and John Williams. And I want to do this song, Luck Be a Lady, but the arrangement that we have, John thinks is too hip for the orchestra. So, so I talked to him about this and, and so would you write an arrangement for it? And my, fir my first impulse was to say, no, I've never done that in my life. I'm not gonna, of course not. And then I, I started to think about it. Do you remember Tommy Johnson, the tuba player? Does that mean anything to you? No. No, it was too, too low in the band, right? Um, <laughs> Tommy was a spectacular, I mean, Malcolm and all these guys knew Tommy, a spectacular tuba player. And he told me many years ago, he said, um, Whenever, asked, whenever anybody asks me if I can do something, I always say yes, because most of the time, like 90, 95% of the time, it's something I already know. And the other 5% of the time, it's something I can learn. Mm 
So I, so I'm on the phone with Seth and I'm thinking, okay, working with an orchestra, that doesn't scare me. I know John, that doesn't scare me. Hollywood Bowl, I've already been, uh, okay, yes, I'll do it. And I figured I'll learn how to do it. So I, I did that arrangement that worked out fine. And then he called me again sometime in the next year. And he said, I'm doing a TV show, um, a sci-fi sort of a, um, I forget what he called it, but it, 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 it's not dystopian. He said, it's got some com comedic stuff and all that kind of stuff. Um, would you be interested in working on it with me? And I said, well, uh, yeah, tell me more about the show. So he told me about the show and he said, you won't have to do any mock-ups. You just write the music, you look at the show, you write the music and you go home. And I said, great, yes, I'll do it. And so I wrote the title and, um, and then I wrote the op opening episode Then the rest of the show is done with a bunch of other guys, all of whom are really good. Um, and then he called me again and he said, so we did that thing at the Hollywood Bowl um, and that turned out pretty well. So, you know, I like to do a, I like to do a CD every year and I'm planning to do three CDs. Would you like to do one of them with me? So again, I thought, I'm never, I'm never sure. <laughs> it was like, it was like big band stuff. And I'd never done, I'd never, I'd never done a big band arrangement in my life. So uh, now we have an album and it turned out great. You know, it just got released about a month or so ago. And, and um, he sounds great on it. He, um, he's a real Sinatra fan. He came over to the house and he, had a whole pile of uh, Sinatra records and he handed them to me and said, here, you may want to listen to these, you know? <laughs> so I did. And um, we went to London, we did three different albums with three different guys. Uh, Joel McNeely did one, Andrew Cotty, an English guy who's really good, uh, did another one, then I did this one. Um, Seth is, um, he's something else. I mean, he's, he, he's got a small group of rhythm guys who he plays with all the time and, uh, and now I think he's doing things on Instagram just so he can play and have his band work. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something else. I mean, I don't know when he gets any sleep. He's always busy doing things, but he's a, you know, he's a, he's a decent guy. He's a sensible guy. He's a smart guy and he doesn't, um, he doesn't screw you around. I mean, he, he knows what he wants and he's, he, he just gets good guys. He just gets good people around him, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> The TV show, as I said, when I worked for, with when I worked for CBS, we used eighteen people. Not Seth. Seth likes this music. He likes this music. So we work with like eighty people. He's worked with more than ninety people on that on that show. You know, it's crazy. I um, we did another version of the main title. It's the same tune, but it's a different arrangement for when the third season goes on Hulu. Um, it's a longer title, and he wanted some changes in it because the show had changed. Um, so we went in to record this, I think last January or something. And I told him the orchestra I was going to have, and he said, is that big enough? I said, it's the same orchestra set that we had on the first one. I said, it should be fine. <laughs> and, um, well, he's got to sound right. I said, no, believe me, it should be fine. I had like 75, 76 people. I can't remember. So we got in and we started, and, he, and he's there, he's listening to the booth. And we started playing things. This thing sounded pretty good, you know, and he was happy. And, then the contractor came up to me and said, um, we got to take a break. Um, Seth wants to hire some more players. <laughs> so we hired 10 more string players. So we just waited till they showed up, you know, and once, the, you know, cause he wanted a big band, he wanted that big sound. So, 
So with an orchestra that big, I mean, you don't have to multi-track, right? I mean, if you've got that no. many strings. Yeah. No, I just, I just recorded it. I mean, multi-tracking is, is what they do now. Um, so they have control on the recording. They call it um, striping. And it, it's pretty, pretty killing for the musicians because you sit there as the violins play their part and then the violas play their part and then the cellos play their part and then the woodwinds play their, you know, and then, you know, you just sit there and sit there and sit there, it's horrible. And you don't ever get a performance with the whole orchestra, which is not great, but, but they can control it because now they've got the violins and they can push them up or push them down and, you know, all the same thing with the trumpets. A lot of scores are being done that way. I think John, John Williams, I'm sure, still records like he normally does, you know. I feel like there's so many more uh, questions I could ask, but um, maybe we could come back, uh, uh, you know, sure. down the road. And uh, I'm not done talking. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the time. This this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, so I think my audience is really going to enjoy uh, enjoy this. So. Well, you you've been patient listening to my long. long oh, this is this is this is exactly what I was hoping for. It's great. Good. Okay. Good. That's great. So, well, take care and thanks again. I appreciate it. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. And that's where we're going to finish today's interview. There's bonus content just for my Patreon patrons. And if you would like access to that, you can subscribe at patreon.com and get access not only to that content, but other great benefits. And just one more reminder, if you would go to Apple Podcasts, leave a comment and a rating, I would greatly appreciate that. And now here's Aaron Rom to take us out. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Tune in next week for another great interview. And one last reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Your support would be most appreciated. And another special thanks to Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn for their support of this podcast. Thanks again. Now, go practice. <laughs>